Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Greetings, space monkeys. We are here for another episode of Cycling in Alignment. Today is a solo discussion with all of the voices in my head. And I'm going to try to keep this one short. There's a novel concept for me. It doesn't really happen too much. But I'm going to do my best to just simply get the information out and then let you be on your way. I'm uh, going to be recording some longer pods with some guests in the near future. Well, I expect them to be longer because our conversations tend to be somewhat nuanced and in-depth. And that's a good thing, at least from my perspective. Hopefully, you'll find these conversations to be worthwhile as well. Nevertheless, enough prevarication about the bush. Today, I want to talk about the etiology of understanding, or the subtitle might be, you know more than you think you do. As with all my podcasts now, there will also be a written piece of content that goes along with this. I'll drop it on my website. That's colbypierce.com. And I'm not going to do a thing where I just SEO this and translate it directly into text. What's that called? Dictate. I'm not going to do that because what's the point? I want to serve my audience in different ways so that readers can be readers and listeners can be listeners and maybe both can do both if they want. But along with the written content, there will be some visual content, including a bit of artwork that I've done in the past that I think is appropriate for this topic. Now, the artwork might be some sketches and some occasions that go with some podcasts, some pods. It might be some simple graphs or illustrations to convey a point that I'm trying to get across. I'm a very visual person. I've been an artist since I was a kid, although I wouldn't really say that part of me is very active at the moment. It kind of got squashed by all the bike racing I've been doing for the last 30 years. So I kind of want to bring that back into my sphere of existence and experience. And one of the ways for me to do that is to include some artwork in the podcast. So that's the plan. We'll see how it goes. I don't know that I'll get art out with every episode, but that's the idea I have in my head. There are lots of ideas I have in my head, though. They don't always make it into the physical universe. So on that exact topic, we have the etiology of understanding. Etiology just means the origin or the cause, you might say, the root of understanding. So how do we understand the things we understand? Or another way to say that might be, how do we know what we know? And while I say this cautiously, it may be the case that we could use the words knowledge and understanding interchangeably, although the definitions, strictly speaking, are quite different. But I tend to think of knowledge as something factual. I have knowledge when I understand the anatomy of the human nervous system or the origin and insertion of a muscle. That is knowledge. And knowledge can be gained from study. It can be gained from conversation. It can be gained from experience. Understanding, I would argue, is a level deeper than knowledge. Understanding is all those things together. Perhaps some textbook knowledge, some clinical knowledge, you might say, and also understanding includes the experience of applying that knowledge. This is how I conceive of these topics or how I conceptualize these topics. That's a better word. And so when I say understanding, what I really mean is something that encapsulates all of those concepts, book learning, strict definitions, theoretical learning, as well as experiential learning, right? So tangible, practical experience in a situation where you've applied the knowledge and then seen the outcome and developed a history enough to have an understanding of how things might play out and then have predictive capacity for the future. 
So you can have knowledge of a topic like the horsepower of an engine and the pressure in the tires of a car. But until you drive that car up and down a mountain, a twisty mountain road at a high velocity, you won't really have the experience of how the tire pressure or how the horsepower or maybe the different octane of fuel you put into it influences the driving characteristics of the car. So in order to have a complete viewpoint on something, we would argue, or I would, I would submit rather that we want to have an understanding of things. Okay, good. So I'll give you the punchline of this pod first. The end point is that we want to really look inside ourselves for understanding. And culturally, we've been taught not to do this at this point in time. At this point in our human development or history, we've been taught to look outside of ourselves for knowledge. And one of the biggest causes of that paradigm or that belief system of where we go seeking for knowledge and ultimately seeking understanding is the internet. And I'll explain briefly how that, how I think that came to be. So what is the internet fundamentally? Well, it's lots of things, but in the context of this conversation, I'd like to consider the qualities of the internet that make it a source of information. So when we have a question, whatever that question is, what kind of tree is in my yard or how many pounds of pressure should I pump up my tire to? We can, of course, go and open a search engine and search and find answers. And we get all the answers from all the people. We get opinions and we get facts and we get experts. Now, here's the problem in this conundrum, right? It's like the paralysis of choice to a degree or the paradox of choice. But let's pretend that we've got a question like how many pounds of air should I put in my tire? A simple question. And also in the back of our minds, let's hold a more complicated question, such as how do I strength train for cycling, right? So we type these questions into our search engine and we get experts. We get, this is the advantage of the internet is that we have access to other people's teachings. The problem comes when we find 10 experts on either side of a topic and they disagree vehemently. This is an issue. Because as a person who isn't studied in that field, what you are seeking is expert advice. But now we have so much information at our fingertips and we have access to that information with such scale that we can find conflicting expert opinions. And these aren't, you know, of course there are examples we can find of people who just pretend to be experts on the internet or pretend to be doctors or pretend to be strength trainers and they make shit up. And that's a possible outcome, but I'm as a purpose of a thought experiment and to illustrate the real paradox of the situation, I'm imagining a scenario where we actually find 10 experts on either side of a very divisive issue. And without getting political, I'll throw out a few examples that can illustrate this clearly. Maybe you won't agree that there are 10 experts on either side of this, but that illustrates the exact problem. Masks vaccine policy, perfect example, like outstanding class A example of this problem, because we can find 10 experts on either side of that debate who have literally spent their entire lives studying this topic. And when you study these people, I've done this in some cases, not in all the cases, of course, but I've had this experience where I've studied these experts and these are just honest, good people who spend their lives studying this topic and they come to a certain conclusion and they believe maybe with every cell of their being that they're on the right side of a given fence, whether that side is to take a vaccine or not to take a vaccine or whether children should take vaccines or whatever we could. Again, I won't go down the rabbit holes of all these discussions. The point is we can find experts on either side of this fence. And there, if you take away the emotion of your own attachment or tribalism to the issue. And you look simply and honestly at the qualifications of the person 
it's easy to find experts on both sides of almost any debate. Now, there's a few exceptions. We're not going to find 10 experts advocating, you know, ridiculous unlawful behavior or behavior that harms other humans or, you know, slicing the head off of puppies or anything weird like that. That's not what I mean. I'm talking about issues that are on the forefront or the cusp, the horizon of scientific discovery, for example. So this puts us in a real problem. This is a conundrum for us as consumers of information, because on the one hand, we have this tremendous window to access other people's teachings. But now we've just created this mess because we see all this conflicting advice. Or an alternative outcome to this problem is you see one person's advice and it seems really well founded and like they're very solidly based teachings. And this person is an expert and you look into their qualifications and you realize they've studied this field their entire life, whatever it is, microbiology. And so you're thinking, okay, this is a solid piece of advice or a solid person to follow because what they're saying makes sense and they've studied all the studies and they've read all the science and they've been doing this their whole life and they're passionate about it and they want to help people. And I can see that. So you follow this person. And this is where we have to talk a little bit about the Dunning-Kruger effect. So the Dunning-Kruger effect is a little bit of a, it's a, it's a bias. It's an error in judgment that pretty much all humans have, if you're not familiar with it. And basically the concept is that when we learn about a new topic, initially we learn all these things. And then there's this sort of crescendo of information and you, you sort of look back after a certain period of study, maybe it's a year, maybe it's five years, you know, I don't know there's no real scale to it. I'm just sort of illustrating this to give you a concept in your head and you look back on it and you think, wow, look at all the things I know. I know so much about this topic and you sort of develop a little bit of a chip on your shoulder about it, like an ego. And maybe the ego then wants to rear its head in different forms of conversation and and show people how much you know. And this is what one writer would refer to as the error of knowledge, right? I'm forgetting the author's name, which is pretty dreadful of me at the moment. Um, One of my teachers, Avery Hopkins, talks about this. It's, oh, it'll come to me. Anyway, I'm just going to move on before I butcher this. But the error of knowledge is basically, it's one of the four errors of man. I think this is Carlos Castaneda, if I'm not mistaken. And the error of knowledge is simply like, look, let me tell you about all the things I know and you don't, right? It's a, it's a young ego. It's a phase of knowledge where we want to be pride prideful about how much we know relative to all the ignorant people. And this is the first phase of the Dunning-Kruger curve. And when you then when you keep studying and learning more about a topic, eventually you realize how much you don't know. And usually that next phase is marked by humble, a humble perspective, a piece of humble pie. And this is where people look back on themselves and they can first of all see the first phase where they had this sort of sense of hubris or let me tell you all the things I know and you don't, but they also have a real sense that they have much more to learn. They've learned enough to know now what else they do not know or what else their field does not know, or they recognize simply that there are other people who are 10 or 15 or 20 years ahead of them in their field. And they recognize how much work they would have to do to catch up. But then of course, in that time, the field will have advanced. And so you're, this is one of the beautiful conundrums about the human race becoming almost 8 billion people that we know all these things and you can never catch up because they're people that are 20 or 30 years ahead of you. And also the field is growing. Any field is growing. All fields are expanding. All knowledge horizons are growing. So we can never keep up. And all of that leads to a sense of overwhelm. I'll mention, and this is a topic I get into in another one of my upcoming pods I've got mapped out. And I don't want to get too off topic here or too much down that path, but 
this is one of the reasons why people feel so much, I, I think, anxiety and overwhelm in this day and age because of this phenomenon, the internet, and how we couldn't predict that the internet would impact our lives this way. So that'll be something I unpack more later, but and I'll, I'll try to tie that into cycling. There are many ways to do that, by the way. I'm not just philosophizing. Ooh, now he's a philosophizer. What is this? A school for ants? So when we have this other side of the Dunning-Kruger effect, we look back on how much we thought we knew at the time. We, we see our own hubris. And then we have a little more capacity to be humble. And some people can hit the other side of the Dunning-Kruger wave, I guess you might call it, and actually sort of get a little bummed out because when they really get a scope of how much they don't know, there's sort of a sense of hopelessness, right? When you dig deep on any one topic, it just never ends. And I'm firmly in this place now in the world of human movement and cycling and just the study of humans in general. I'm constantly in awe at how much I don't know. And there are days, to be honest, where I feel like stopping or just surrendering in a non-forward motion kind of way because it's a lot. Um, and I'm just, just having an honest moment with that. But then I get encouraging notes from my clients or I have um, positive interactions with someone I do a bike fit with and they really benefit from the stuff that I can bring to them. So that keeps me going so far. So when we have the Dunning-Kruger effect in our consideration and when we take it into, when we know about it and we begin to study a new field, it can be useful to hold that in our minds, I think, because that curve is very typical of people who study new things opening my squeaky water bottle there. A perfect illustration of the Dunning-Kruger effect is a statistic I heard recently, which is that 93% of all drivers in the U.S. think they are better than average drivers. <laughs> I just love that. It's hilarious because by definition, we know it's incorrect, right? But it also just illustrates the hubris of the American mindset. I'm going to bash America for a minute. But I mean, seriously, people, what's the deal? I mean, I was a bike racer for 35 years, so I know I'm a better than average driver. <laughs> so um, the other thing I'll mention is that when we're on the other side of the Dunning-Kruger curve and you're in a conversation with someone who's in your field, the example I'm thinking of in my case is other bike fitters. There's sort of this feeling out that happens between the people that you interact with, between your colleagues. And when you realize that the other person is on the downslope of the Dunning-Kruger curve, we'll say, or effect, or more so when they realize you are on the other side of that curve, that mountain, there's sort of a little bit of an ego trip and sort of a, but like a brotherhood, sisterhood, high five kind of thing that happens because I suppose it's like a, a rite of passage in a way, like when you can both sit there and look at each other and go, yeah, we don't know anything. And we've been doing this for a long time. That's kind of a shared experience that can be in common. It can also turn into a big, a bit of an ego trip because then again, it's another place of, well, what I know is what I don't know, but that other person who's only been doing this for two years doesn't know that yet. So that puts me above them in the sense, even though I'm doing it in a humble way. Anyway, it's just a trap. The ego is very clever. It, it's always trying to find ways to make you feel better than and make other people feel less than. That's the goal of the ego. It's like a crafty little, little varmint in your mind. And that's okay. It's, um, it's there for a reason. So what I want to point out is really this concept of internal versus external seeking of knowledge. 
or more appropriately, understanding. This is the essence of where I think so many problems come in decision-making. Someone's trying to solve a problem. They have a goal. They're an athlete. They want to go faster on the bike. They want to learn how to strength train. They want to learn why they're having challenge on the bike, why their knee hurts, why their back hurts, why they feel twisted on the saddle. These are very common, common reports that I get from riders who come through the front door of my fit studio. And so they want to know the why they've consulted experts have gone on the internet. Maybe they've gotten little glimmers or, or nuggets of information or, or a bit of knowledge here and there that they put together. Right. And what I would offer is this, when you have a problem, broadly speaking, when you only look externally for the solution, you're placing your power outside of yourself. When you look internally and feel for what an answer might be, you put the power inside yourself. That doesn't mean that you can't listen or seek knowledge, but to have understanding, remember the definition of understanding, at least as I've laid it out, is textbook or clinical knowledge in addition to experience. So we have to have some basic knowledge, right? For example, it's useful to know if you're having problems in the anterior aspect of your hip, that's the front part of your hip. It's useful to know what muscles flex the hip, right? So we can know a bit of anatomy. We can understand that one of the quadriceps, the rectus femoris, is a hip flexor. And it's useful to know what the shape of the rectus femoris is and where it attaches to your hip. And you may be able to then by understanding that or having that knowledge, then using the experience of the pain or the discomfort in your hip, come to an understanding, mm, this is probably my rectus femoris that's causing this issue. It's This is the muscle that's in pain. And I can figure that out from the knowledge that I gained from studying a bit of anatomy, but then from the internal experience and the instinct of the, of feeling the discomfort while I'm riding or after a hard ride or after I lift weights or whatever, whenever it happens, then you start to put together the picture. But the most critical aspect of that is going to be, I would argue your own instinct, your internal knowing or internal understanding, right? It's, I'm still using those words somewhat interchangeably. Hopefully I'm not losing you. And I think they are somewhat interchangeable. So it's not life or death, but if you simply look for knowledge externally from other people, other experts, you're going to be missing a critical step. And I talk about this same concept in my coaching platform on, on team EF coaching in the sense that when an athlete looks to their power meter or their heart rate monitor to know how strong they are or how fast they can summit a climb, they're putting their power outside of themselves. So to speak, I don't mean power in a power meter sense. I mean, power in your, in terms of your own personal agency, right? And when you look at the numbers and the numbers dictate your outcome, well, then I would argue your order of operations is incorrect. Data, whether it's power meter, the number of watts you're doing, or the number of beats per minute your heart is beating, or the number of pedal revolutions per minute you're making, or whatever other data point you're looking at, HRV, etc. All data does is support intuition. It supports internal understanding. As a coach, I think it's fair to say that I never make a decision for an athlete based on numbers alone. I, I don't do that. And if you heard my podcast with Tim Cusick, who's one of the product lead product developers, or maybe the lead product developer at WKO, which is the Training Peaks desktop companion software, which is super detailed and about as nerdy as it gets when it comes to data analysis. Tim himself said in the pod that data is not the answer and that we don't make decisions. Even he does not make decisions 
for his athletes training programs based solely off numbers, right? Humans are not algorithms. Just like we don't eat carbohydrates, protein, and fats. We don't eat macronutrients. What we eat is food. And food is far more than just grams of carbohydrate. So you see the theme here that I'm getting at is that when we look with the left brain at the world and we zip code everything and we quantify everything, we're missing essential elements. And when we look outside to other experts on the internet to tell us how to do things, or we look exteriorly, exogenously at our power meters to tell us how hard to go, we're missing the whole point. The true source of understanding for everything comes from within yourself. And that's why I'm titling the podcast, you know more than you think you do. When we're quiet, when we are still, and when our mindset is not driven by fear or air quotes need, there's a lot of information we can gather just from listening internally, following instinct. Do I need to eat more dinner or less dinner? Do I need to drink more fluids or less fluids? Do I need to pause and take some supplements? Right? What would inform that intuition? Maybe in the afternoon you felt a little run down, a little sniffly in the nose, a little scratchy in the throat. Okay, let's see what we've got that can support our immunity. Let's consider having some lemon ginger tea. This is the kind of simple intuition I'm talking about. And when we follow that intuitive path, we're respecting to a certain degree, natural law. Now, when I say natural law, I don't mean, if you look up natural law, you might get this sort of focus on human rights or social contracts. I'm not talking about any of that crap. What I'm talking about is natural law in the sense that it is in accordance with nature. It's in accordance with the rhythms of nature, right? And when we do this, most of our choices come out to be in the middle path. That is to say, on our dinner plate, we have a balance of foods. And if we were to look at the macronutrient profiles of those foods, we would find some carbohydrate, some fat, and some protein, right? In most cases, not always, perhaps, but in many. So when we follow this rhythm of natural law that is act in accordance with nature, the rhythms of the day, the rhythms of the sun, the rhythms of important things like sleep, hunger, thirst, when to use the bathroom. And when we respect our own energy levels, when we, sorry, two thoughts at once there, when we respect our own energy levels and our own rhythm, then the outcome of things like a bike ride are far more likely to be productive. But when we need to ride our bikes, when we have to do intervals, when we must do training or we're going to fall behind or not be good enough, and the primal fear drives our decision-making, that is to say, the primal fear is really the fear that all humans have. It can take different forms, but fundamentally, it's about not being enough, not being good enough, not being smart enough, not being fast enough, not having a high enough VO2, not being cute enough not being handsome enough, not being ripped enough, not having enough abs, not having enough money, not being funny enough. It's all these fears are the same root, which is comparison. And as I spoke about with one of my clients just recently, the expression goes, comparison is the thief of joy. Of course, if you're a cyclist, then you're an athlete and athleticism is about comparison, especially competitive athleticism. When you pin on a number and pay an entry fee, that's the whole point. So we don't escape this mindset, but we also have to accept that being judged is part of being human and living in society. 
people are going to look at you and have opinions about your pants and your hair and your placing in the last bike race or how arrow you are or aren't or whether or not your ass looks fat in that shimmy. It's just the way it is. You got to be okay with it. Otherwise, you make yourself nuts. I mean, we can all try to be whatever, Angelina and Brad or J-Lo and I don't know, someone else famous. And we can all feel miserable when we're not up to those standards constantly. But what, what kind of way to live life is that, right? Pretty sure you already know this. Actually, I'm quite certain you do. And I'll just rewind a bit and say that all coaching is basically reminding people what they already know. We're usually not actually teaching. We're just reminding or maybe centering. When someone becomes off center, when they start chasing external knowledge and start dividing themselves or fracturing themselves, chasing goals or numbers that are either are not realistic or are not really truly coherent with their path, then they get in trouble, right? So a lot of coaching is just about bringing people to center. And in order to do that, if you're a coach, you need to be centered because you can't teach what you haven't at least worked on, if not mastered yourself. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I'm the ultimate centered human and I don't have emotions or reactions. That's not why I'm here at all. I'm a person just like everyone else and I have to do my own work every single day, just like most people do. And when I say work, what I mean is sweeping my own doorstep. figuratively and literally. But in order to coach someone effectively, you've got to be doing your own work. So if you're coaching, you're listening to this and you're telling your athletes to do things that you are not doing yourself, I would offer that they're going to pick up on that hypocrisy. And that's a pretty harsh word to use, but that's ultimately what it boils down to. As coaches, we have a responsibility to live our lives to at least the standard we expect our clients to. And that includes in all aspects. Diet, weight management, training load, spirituality, breathing patterns, hydration, sleep, you don't get to stay up till one in the morning, surfing the internet and writing training programs, and then expect your clients to go to bed early. That's, that's not going to fly. And your clients will feel and detect that inauthenticity after a while, after a period of time. I'm not saying you have to be a super fast, amazing bike racer to coach people. Don't mistake that message. It's more about choices you make in your lifestyle. But it does help to go out on the bike and smash yourself once in a while because there is a point when, as a coach, you can write training for an athlete and forget what it feels like to do those hard rides. It's easy to write down five hours with this, that, and that. It's another thing to go do it. So that was definitely a tangent. Off in the weeds, coming back. Ultimately, I just want to convey the message that I wish people would look more internally for the answers that they need. You know more than you think you do, and you can iron out a lot of things by listening to instinct and intuition. The caveat to that is you have to be relatively healthy to do this. And that's a big topic, but if you're paying attention to your six foundational principles, that's a good step. If you're eating crap food and putting a bunch of prescription drugs in your system, not to be all judgy and elitist, but you're going to have a hard time listening to your intuition when your body's got some of those chemicals floating around in there. Now, I know that sounds like a really vague hippie statement, and it is, but I'll stand by it. Not all prescription drugs will make you incapable of listening to your intuition. I'm not saying that. But I will say that if you're, I'll say this, 
one of the primary unwritten laws of Western medicine is that feelings are bad. Think about almost every drug we take. The purpose of the drug is to detach or disconnect the human from feeling. I mean, look at when you take, when you have a head cold and you take Sudafed, what does it do? It stops your nose from running. It stops all the natural processes that your body has instigated to help you deal with the cold. Those things don't just happen to make you miserable. They're, they're purposeful. Everything in nature has a purpose. All the responses the body has to an injury or to an illness, those are on purpose. They're by design and they're the most effective way to handle something. So the incredible hubris of humanity to think that we can outsmart nature, it just astounds me. This is what natural law is. It just blows my mind when it happens over and over again. People don't seem to learn this lesson. So when we take Sudafed or whatever cold medication, you know, there's no cure for the common cold. So all you're doing is treating symptoms. You're just making yourself feel better. But of course, you're making yourself feel better in the short term, which is more likely to make you feel worse in the long term. There's always a price to pay. The bill always comes due, just like the guy said in Doctor Strange. It's natural law. You tamper with natural law and it's going to come back to bite you in the ass. This is the whole concept of that entire movie. So when we trade out short-term feelings, 72 hours of not dealing with that terribly inconvenient head cold, what are we trading out? Well, if your body's normal system of dealing with a cold involves things like runny noses and headaches and forcing you to rest because you feel like crap and you go and nuke yourself with a bunch of Sudafed and then work, continue to work nine hours a day. And presumably you got a cold because you were a bit worn down or run down in the first place. And then you push through the cold with more work. Where's the consequence? Where do we imagine that might have some impact on our health? Probably it depletes our body in some form that we can't predict, whether that's taking minerals out of your bones or making your blood chemistry not so hot. I don't know. I would guess there are probably a bunch of downstream effects, especially if that happened three or four times in a year. But this is how we end up walking around as empty shells of humans who don't quite have as much strength on the bike as we might natively, innately. We deplete ourselves by doing, doing, doing. So when we disconnect from our feelings, when we make choices that dissociate from what we feel, whether that's taking an Advil or a Sudafed or doing something far more nefarious and shadowy, like just not acknowledging when we are feeling sad or anxiety or grief or sympathy or worry because feelings are yucky. They're meant to be felt, not talked about, right? When we refuse to acknowledge these feelings, we're disconnecting from our instinct, our intuition and our internal understanding. So the ugliest truth is always more attractive than the best dress lie. When we are in touch with our internal understanding, we're accessing, there are two concepts that I want to highlight here. One is the concept of innate knowledge. I mean, have you ever known something just concretely, like all the way through? Maybe it's a fact, maybe it's an event that came to you that you knew was going to happen. And then it played out a certain way. Like you knew the phone was going to ring and then it rang and then you knew who it was going to be. And it was that person, or maybe you dreamt about a person and then you saw them the next day and you hadn't seen them in five years. We hear stories like this all the time that happen in people's lives. This is not that bizarre, right? This is innate knowledge. This is something you just have an understanding of, but you can't explain why. And there are lots of explanations for innate knowledge. One of them is that knowledge is actually passed genetically through cells. There's a lot of science to support this, like a lot, that cells change through life experience and that is passed on through generations. 
that part, and I'm not confusing that with evolution. These are two different things. But another is, well, there are two concepts. One is Steiner's concept of the collective unconscious. Sorry, this is Hume, not Steiner, my bad. And this simple idea that there is a collective, we'll say, database of understanding that flows between people. And there are ideas that seemingly come to your head out of nowhere. And one of the explanations is that it comes from the collective unconscious, which is an interesting idea. Another idea is Rupert Sheldrake's morphogenic fields, which I don't know much about, but my understanding is that it is a, a more advanced discussion of the same concept. I'll leave it at that for now. The other idea is a priori knowledge. So what I've talked about so far is knowledge that is within the context of learning from a book or from a person. And we're thinking about it more factually, like knowledge about World War II, for example, and the dates and when this country invaded that country and how many soldiers were in the battle and how many died, etc. That kind of knowledge right? Innate knowledge or excuse me, a priori knowledge would be really independent from experience. So it's a form of knowledge that you have, but you haven't gone out and experienced the studying of World War II. You just knew it. And again, this is a little bit confounding when we think about it, especially from the left brain perspective, because we tend to think of our brains as empty disk drives that have to be filled with facts. And they're only filled, the science mind will say they're only filled with facts that we can prove. This is bullshit. I mean, this is complete bullshit. And in case you're wondering why I'm so convicted on this opinion, I'll just give you a very simple example. You know, the science mind wants to say things like, well, if you can't show me a double line study, then I won't believe it. And in some respects, we might even argue that one of the new forms of religion is science, which is pretty frightening to me. This is the ultimate expression, by the way, of someone looking for external knowledge to validate everything they think they know. This is, this is it. This is the archetype of looking for external knowledge is worship of science. It's treating science as a religion and regarding science as the end all of what we know. And the only way that we know anything concretely is through science with something that's been published in a scientific journal and therefore been peer reviewed and approved. And all the conflicts of interest have been disclaimed, etc. And this is total bullshit. Because there are many, many things that we know and understand as humans that are part of our human experience that can never be double-blinded. I've said this before on my pod, you can't double-blind everything. And maybe you've heard of this example before, but I just gotta give it. Do you love your wife? Do you love your husband? Do you love your child? Really? Well, I don't believe you. Prove it to me. Show me the double-blind study that proves to me that you love your husband. How many subjects were in it? What was the, what was the P value, right? Show me the, how much do you love? Can you quantify how much you love your husband or your, or your daughter or your dog? Do you love your dog 99? Do you love your dog 1000? Like, what is that? You can't prove this to me. You can't demonstrate this to me scientifically. There are probably Certainly, there are indicators we could have of love, right? I'm sure we can measure body temperature and electromagnetic response to touch and some other things that we could tell us there is a difference when a certain person is in a room that you love versus one that you don't or you've never met or that looks scary to you. I'm sure we can measure that, but that's not proof that you love that person. I still don't have proof. And you can show me 15 years of love letters and valentines and roses and receipts from flower stores and 
receipts from the rings that you bought each other, that doesn't prove to me you love them. Those are just things you bought. You see what I'm getting at? So we can devil's advocate this to death. But I'm illustrating just using the perhaps keystone example to annihilate that argument in my opinion. The argument that we only know things that can be proven in a scientific paper. This is bullshit. This is a very limited way to look at the world. Now, I'm not saying science has no value. I got to be clear on that because apparently we have to disclaim everything in 2022. So I will disclaim this. I won't disclaim everything though, but I'm not saying science is useless. We learn a lot from science. Science can teach us valuable things. I think that science does amazing things. I also think that a lot of scientists have been bought off and that data, there's a massive amount of data corruption in the world of science right now. And this is a good example of interior understanding. I'll say me applying a simple formula of logic and internal understanding. Now, why would I come to this conclusion without having done tons and tons of research and without having evaluated the conflicting viewpoints of different experts on this? Why would I come to the conclusion that a lot of science has been bought off? Well, look at the facts. Let's use logic for a minute. We know that social media is lobbying for human beings' attention and that there's a lot, an insane amount of money to be made from human attention. So we are the commodity. We are the product. Social media is the means to gain that product, right? To gain command of human attention. So it's pretty simple. If science is our religion in 2022 for many people, why wouldn't we buy science and then use it to our advantage to capture attention since we already have the perfect delivery vehicle. Social media is basically, it's a pick line. It is an IV directly into your brain. And most people have plugged it in themselves. So why wouldn't we use that pick line to give them the information that we want to give them? Science can be purchased. Let's just, just like anything else. I hate to say it. You know, I know that's sacrilegious when science is your religion and you believe that it is sacred. And conceptually, it is. At its core, science is something that teaches us. It brings us new levels of knowledge. It expands the, the horizon of knowledge and understanding. That's what it does at its core. And in its purest form, science does that without bias, right? You set forth a hypo hypothesis, you test the hypothesis and then you draw a conclusion. Was your hypothesis correct or incorrect? If I paint a frog red, it will jump farther. Go find some frogs, go find some other frogs, put some in the experimental group, put some others in the test group, paint the experimental group frogs red, then make them all jump somehow and then measure their jump distance. And sure enough, all the red frogs jumped much farther. So the conclusion I come to is that red paint is aerodynamic and you should paint all your bicycles red. I just threw that in there to see if you were listening. So this is science in its purest form. But if everyone worships science and we believe that it is our ultimate truth, then if I was someone who had unlimited funds, which there are definitely human beings on the face of this earth who have what we would consider to be unlimited funds, there may be some trillionaires now. And I wanted, I had, we'll say nefarious intent, or I wanted simply more money. This would be a very effective way to do this. Now, probably some of you have turned this off and said, this guy's a nut job conspiracy theorist. All I'm doing is drawing lines between what I see is logic and our current situation. I don't know any of these things to be fact, but I find it highly likely that people are manipulating science to their benefit, especially given the presence of social media. I'll say it that way. And I think most people would probably agree that makes sense. But who knows? Maybe you think I'm an idiot. That's cool too. So 
when we have, to rewind a bit, when we have a priori knowledge, it is knowledge that is independent from experience. We don't have to go out and learn it in the world and we don't have to go out and read it. It just seems to be in our minds. And I have had many experiences of a priori knowledge. I think you gotta be a little creative sometimes to have that. And you have to be open to it. You gotta be honest and listen to it. And when that thought comes in your head, you wonder where it came from and then you go test it. You're a scientist. Um, some examples of a priori knowledge I've had have been about ways to train on the bike. And I've tried different training methods for years trying to make myself faster. And oftentimes they worked, oftentimes they didn't. But what I discovered later was that in those cases where they didn't, my application sucked or I didn't quite have enough. I needed to add some experience to complete the understanding that I gained to, to make it a complete package in conjunction with the a priori intuition that I had, right? Which was an, an example of an a priori intuition is like, well, I need more acceleration in my training. This ride isn't enough load and threshold isn't going to be the right load at this time of year or for where my fitness is right now. And these types of intervals are going to be too hard or not constructive, or they're going to hurt me in the wrong way. They're going to be too abrupt for where I'm at right now. So I'm going to add some sprints. That's a simple example. To synopsize that long, weird, rambling philosophical podcast, I just want to say that I encourage you to really listen to yourself and your own internal understanding, in particular on topics that are well outside of your area of expertise and where we do have conflicting viewpoints, conflicting experts. And I'll make one additional comment on that. You know, talking about the Dunning-Kruger effect again, when we do, when someone gets under our skin a bit, that's not the right expression. When someone, when we encounter someone's teachings and we start to read them and they resonate a bit, we feel like we're on the right path then we can really latch on to that viewpoint. We can adopt that belief system, that person's teachings, their, their system of teachings. And sometimes that adoption or that tribalism comes about simply as a result of blind circumstance. Mm. Let me rephrase that simply as a, as a result of the order of operations. That is to say, you caught someone's video on YouTube and it seemed like they had a really good ideas about strength training. And so you started following that person and then you became a believer in their system. Now, what I'm pointing out here is that until you study other people's perspectives, you're just being force fed one path of thought. And that might be the thought that the, the, the path that you choose in the end, but until you contrast it with other people's lines of thinking, you don't really have a fair basis for fair basis for comparison. You see my point, if you're only looking at one side, you can't understand the depth of a topic to have true depth of understanding. We have to see all sides and study different people. You have to look at both the people who believe that vaccines work and that they're safe, and also study the people who believe that vaccines are unsafe and that no one should take them. And when you study the, the best people you can find, that is the, the most developed, the people with the highest levels of expertise on both sides, at that point, you have a complete understanding of the topic and you can make a more informed decision. And maybe you think that one side is completely full of shit or the other one is. That's fine. You've done your homework. The problem comes when we can't do that with every topic. 
So I would argue the method of operations is as follows. Understand the major points, the, the defining philosophies of different sides of the equation or different sides of the different viewpoints of the issue. That doesn't mean nuanced, detailed study. It means you get the basic concepts, familiarize yourself with the basic concepts at play, then make a decision based on your own intuition and understanding on which direction to go. And in the world of exercise, since we're constantly doing N of one experiments anyway, this works out to be very tidy. What do I mean by this? So you'll find a video of someone doing yoga on YouTube and you're wondering if that's the right one for you. You try it a little bit. And instead of looking at science papers about whether or not yoga is good or bad for you or looking at stretch reflex papers, just try some of the yoga and see how you feel. Try it before your ride. Try it after your ride. How do your muscles feel? Does your nervous system feel responsive and like you've got good flow, like you've got good coordination and good ability to generate cadence? Do you feel centered in the saddle or do you feel sloppy and yucky? Or do you feel like you are having trouble accelerating? Do you feel like you're having trouble making force? Right? This is the N of one and understand that your N of one has tremendous value because to shift analogies for a moment or examples, rather Jonathan Vodders is allergic to broccoli. My wife's allergic to mushrooms. I'm basically allergic to donuts. So we have three different people with three different food allergies. And that's why the N of one is super important because if I go out and eat a ton of broccoli and conclude that all my athletes should eat broccoli, and then I start telling them to eat broccoli and one of them is allergic, they're going to have a problem. Now that's a very simplistic example, but the point is that your own internal experience always should play a role in this. So if you're doing a certain type of strength training and things get yucky, then that's a sign that you should listen to. Bringing hopefully a bit of practical advice into this, even more so to drill it down. When we look honestly and in a moment of calm and centeredness into the choices we're making, usually the best one at that moment will be pretty clear. Intuition is clouded by fear or need. That is to say perceived fear or perceived need. What do I mean by that? If you make a choice, if you're trying to figure out intuitively whether you should do hard intervals on a given day or take another rest day, because you can't quite figure out if you're recovered. When you ask the question to yourself, should I, should I just ride easy or should I go try some efforts? If you're framing the question in a mindset of fear, which is my first race is in three weeks. I really don't feel like I've got enough in the tank. I'm not prepared. I'm feeling like I'm going to get my ass kicked unless I do a lot more intensity. And you feel that throttle of pressure to perform, then the fear can override the clarity of your own internal signal. And it can convince you that you need to go do intervals. And maybe you do no need to go do intervals that day with the end result being that you are smashed for your race because you're too tired because you push too hard and then you learn a lesson, right? We're not always on a perfectly linear path of progression. And sometimes we have to trip and fall on our faces in order to remember to look for the step. This is how this process goes. We all get our asses kicked sometime, myself unquestionably included. So in the end, there's kind of no wrong decision is a one way to look at it, right? It's like when Ben and Luke are talking and Luke's like a certain point of view. A lot of times it depends on the, the lens through which we're framing the question. But if you come to that choice, should I do intervals today or should I just ride easier? Or maybe I should do something in the middle. And you come to it from a place of, we'll say non-attachment, 
That is to say, you're not lobbying for one outcome or the other. You're not, you don't have a, a Western, I'll, I'll beat up on Western culture for a minute. You don't have a Western framework of more is always better. And that therefore that's what we should do. And that's what we should aim towards. You let that framework go for a moment. And then you ask the question, honestly, what do you feel? The more you practice that, the better you'll get at it. And the more you let go of the fear about being prepared and just accept that things are what they are and you're going to be as prepared as you're going to be, the more of that mindset you have, the more you'll enjoy the sport and the more probably you'll express your best athletic performances on a regular basis. That's what I have to say about that. One more random thought that just popped in my head. I, it, like this Western Eastern thing actually drives me nuts. It doesn't make any sense because we live on a globe. I'm not a flat earther. You probably know that by now. Maybe some of you are. If you're, if you're like a real flat earther and you want to hold my pod, hit me. Let's do it. But I don't get it because like you're going in a circle. So what does West mean? How far West do we go? Like where does West start and East begin? That doesn't make any sense. China is to the East. America's to the West. Well, it's just because we drew a line around the center of the globe vertically and called it that arbitrarily. But obviously, if you keep going to the West, you end up where you started. It's, uh, did these blow up into funny shapes at all or just circular? If you know what movie that is, you should write me a comment on my Instagram and tell me, and I will send you something for free in the mail because that's pretty obtuse. I don't know what it is. It'll be something cool. Thanks for listening, Grail One. I hope you made it through this rant slash random dislinear thinking. I don't think that's a word. And I hope you got something out of it. I'm a long way from telling people how to raise their FTP. So that's why we're here. Uh, this weekend I'm recording again with, it looks like Ron Kochevar. I'm really excited about that. He was one of my earlier guests on my pod. We're going to unpack a lot of stuff about strength and how it applies to cycling and dig into that. I've also got some other guests lined up and some exciting announcements to make soon. So keep your pants on, which is just good advice in general, unless you're getting ready to go for a bike ride and you got to take your pants off and put on your cycling clothes, which I recommend. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hit me on the gram with comments. I'll try to be back to you at a reasonable rhythm and move consciously, pedal quickly with supple muscle. Take care. Gratitude. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard-fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong, but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse because if we can't have a discourse as adults 
then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about, and while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not, to be clear, to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings. Blessings.